You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome back to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod, and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. And every episode of this podcast will always be free, but if you'd like to support what I do here, you can become a patron at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer, for exclusive content recorded specifically for Patreon across all three of the podcasts that I host. Uh, you get exclusive B-roll episodes, TV and book reviews, movie reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and early access to podcast episodes, as well as previously unreleased content. Again, that's at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And the way that that works is it's a recurring monthly payment. And once you sign up, you get instant access to everything. I think that there are, depending on the tier that you join at, there's a total of 374 um, things spread across all those different categories. So um, I'm really proud of it. There's a lot of fun stuff on there. And uh, yeah, so check out uh, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. So Today on the show, I'm going to be discussing The Jungle, which is the 12th episode of The Twilight Zone's third season, which aired on December 1st, 1961. And of course, I'll be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 20, Negative Man. And uh, before I get into the plot summary and get into all of this fun stuff with the jungle and everything, I do want to just mention a couple things. One is that I apologize for the complete radio silence for nearly a year, um, as is the it's kind of customary for me with a, a solo podcast to just kind of fall off the uh, fall off the rhythm of it and everything. And it's a, it's a lot. And I've, I've had a lot of stuff going on in the last year, but, um, if you've missed my voice, hopefully you're going to be enjoying this. Um, and in the interim, hopefully you checked out some of my other podcasts. I've been releasing episodes on obsessive viewer and tower junkies, obsessive viewer being a movie and TV podcast discussion show that I host and, uh, tower junkies being a Stephen King centric, um, podcast that I host with my, my friend tiny. So, Anyway, um, I'm back. I'm excited to get back into this project because I'm very proud of what I do on Anthology, and it's it's just really exciting. <laughs> and also, this is this episode, and then the next episode, or I should say, after I review the next episode of The Twilight Zone after this, Once Upon a Time, episode 13, I will have officially made it to the halfway point of the original Twilight Zone series. So I'm going to hopefully do something special for my uh, halfway through the zone um, episode. But anyway, the other thing I'm going to mention is, of course, if you're a listener of this podcast, you know that I do bonus episodes reviewing other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology shows. And as such, uh, there was news about Black Mirror recently. Um, Charlie Brooker, about a year ago, year and a half ago, said that he just wasn't really in the right headspace to do um, something as dark and 
just very drab as Black Mirror because, you know, the world was on fire and everything. Um, and it was announced uh, recently, within the past few weeks, that Black Mirror will, in fact, have a season six now. So hopefully he's, you know, it sounds like he's kind of gone through it and everything and he's he's uh, doing better now in terms of mental health and everything. But yeah, and apparently each episode, I think, I, if I remember correctly, it's going to be like very big, like they're going to be very big episodes, I think. I don't know. I might be confusing that with Stranger Things. But anyway, very excited for a sixth season of Black Mirror, even though since the Netflix deal, it has been kind of hit or miss, but anything for, you know, new sci-fi anthology shows in new sci-fi anthology episodes. I'm all for it. So uh, look forward to my coverage of that when it comes. Uh, but for now, let's get into my review of The Jungle. And as as is always the case, I'm going to be spoiling The Jungle from the outset. So if you haven't seen The Jungle, um, go check it out. Come back, listen to this episode. Or if you don't mind spoilers, just continue listening. So um, I'm going to start the review by reading a plot summary courtesy of The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. And that plot summary is going to be spoiling the entirety of the episode. So warning out, you're, you've been warned, spoilers on for The Jungle. And here we go with the plot summary. Alan and Doris Richards have recently returned from a trip to Africa because Alan is an engineer for a hydroelectric uh, plant being constructed in the heart of the, con of the continent. Though he's not a superstitious man, Alan soon finds, him soon finds himself suffering from the ill effects of a curse placed on him and the company he works for by a witch doctor who is against the project. Forced to walk home alone through the silence of the sleeping city, Alan hears the sounds of drums and animal cries mooring through the streets roaring through the streets sorry uh the city itself becomes a jungle as alan makes a desperate attempt to reach home safely the impending danger grows when he attempts to walk through the park to get to his apartment and races as fast as his legs can take him back home alan feels secure in the knowledge that a witch doctor's curse couldn't possibly reach him inside his own house until he opens the door of his bedroom a lion jumps off the bed and shreds him to death <laughs> uh, this episode stars john denner as alan richards this is his second of three twilight zone episodes the first being the lonely from season one and the next we'll see from him is in season five's mr garrity and the graves he also had um his some of his other acting credits included the right stuff and airplane to the sequel uh, and he passed away in 1992 uh portraying doris richards as emily mclaughlin uh, this was her only episode of The Twilight Zone, and she didn't really, she didn't work with Serling anywhere else or anything. Um, I noticed on her filmography, it's kind of sparse, but uh, her last credits were in several episodes of General Hospital, uh, and she passed away in 1991. And then uh, rounding out the cast is Walter Brooke as Chad Cooper. This is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes, and the next we'll see from him is a short drink from a certain fountain in, 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 uh, sorry, in season five which that title, when I read it, it's interesting because, uh, when I read that in the credits, I was like, I like, I've, I have, I have notes, I have notes and notes and notes and like plans for a, each individual episode. I have them matched up with, with the episodes of science fiction theater and everything, all this stuff. 
And I did not remember there being a, an episode titled A Short Drink from a Certain Fountain. And what I found out was that apparently it's one of the quote-unquote lost episodes. Um, that wasn't part of a syndication package. I'll get more information on that when I get uh, when I get to that episode in season five. But um, yeah, interesting. It's just it's just a title that I hadn't heard or don't remember hearing before. I guess uh, Walter Brook also had some acting credits uh, for movies like Tora 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 and The Graduate, and he passed away in 1986. And writer for this episode was Charles Beaumont. Um, it felt like, uh, it feels like it's been a while since we've had a Beaumont episode. And this episode does not disappoint in terms of the Beaumontness of it. <laughs> um, this is his 10th of 22 episodes. And uh, his we previously saw his work in the absolutely phenomenal episode Shadowplay in season two. I... I still just adore that episode. Just, oh, I, I love it so much. And the next we'll see from him is Dead Man's Shoes, which is this season. And uh, this story is, or this episode is based on his short story called The Jungle, which was first published in the December 1954 issue of If, Worlds of Science Fiction. And director for this episode was William Claxton. This is his second of four Twilight Zone episodes. Previously was, again, another episode that I absolutely adore. Uh, season one's The Last Flight, which still just personal favorite of mine. Love it. Love it so much. Um, and then the next we'll see from him is later this season when he directs The Little People. Okay, so let me get into my thoughts as a first-time viewer for The Jungle. And before I do that, actually, what I usually do and what I am going to do now is um, detail what I knew about the episode before. And this is going to be interesting because I wrote these notes about almost a year ago, probably more than a year ago, actually, um, at this point. So um, I haven't read through this part of my notes yet, so I'm very curious what um, what, what I thought it was. So these are what I what I knew before watching The Jungle for the first time last year. No idea. I think it was set. Uh, I thought it was set in nineteen. Or I'm sorry, in World War II, but I couldn't be sure. I knew that. I, I I'll just read my notes. I know there's a controversial George Takei episode, but I don't think this is it. This might be the episode where a U.S. soldier switches places with a Japanese soldier, like a body swap. Uh, the cover image on Hulu completely changes my mind on that. I think it involves a businessman. Could the title be referring to the uh, expression, it's a jungle out there, regarding cutthroat business tactics? Um, so yeah, so th those are that's what I thought before going into this episode. And I really like that it's a literal jungle, though. <laughs> like, I, as I'll get into to my review and everything, I do really like this episode. Or for, uh, I'm going to walk that back. I enjoy this episode for what it is it's it's not a top tier twilight zone episode for me not to spoil my review but it is an enjoyable episode for certain aspects of the filmmaking that i'm going to highlight in my review but uh but yeah i clearly did not have a clue what what i was getting myself into so this was uh interesting and so now i'll go into my thoughts on the jungle um first up we 
get introduced to the episode, the episode brings us in in that kind of classic Twilight Zone way where we have this upbeat music that's being used in a city skyline backdrop. Um, the upbeat music seems like I, I didn't check my notes or I didn't check the notes or anything, but it's like stock music that they've used before in the show. But it gives this kind of it gives this kind of vibrancy to it. And, and it's really interesting now that I'm kind of talking through this and everything that this kind of like doo -doo 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 -doo, um, I can't really do it justice. Actually, let me go ahead and play. Uh, just the opening clip here so you can hear the music. Um, but while I'm bringing that up, I will say that what it does, what I, what I find really interesting about this um, episode or this this stinger at the beginning, even though it is kind of stock stock music that um, that I think is has been used before, um, what it does in this episode, given the content of this episode, is what it does is it has this kind of like hustle and bustle feel to it or this this um aspect to it where it feels like it it kind of evokes this feeling of like a big city which it's set in new york city and it's just you know it's very much a um it's a uh it's a story it's a story about a city and where that city becomes a jungle basically and that's such an interesting a uh, way to bring us into this episode by having this music that is very much a kind of hustle and bustle makes you think of city life. So here I'm going to play a clip of that right now. So yeah, so that's the beginning of it. It it kind of sounds like it it has that kind of energy to it. Um, so I I just kind of like that. It kind of just gives that idea because we're seeing when that when that music plays, we're seeing just the a night a nightscape vision of a city of a city backdrop, a city skyline, and it just kind of gives this you know hustle and bustle of of you know modern modern day stuff. Um, and you know industrial and 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 um uh i don't know if industrial well yeah i guess industrial's right i don't know but anyway very hustle and bustle of cities and i i really uh appreciate that uh, because usually those i mean those like little introduction in, introductory music stings don't really do much or anything uh for the most part and here i think it does it does inform the episode quite well it's it's a really good um introduction 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 to the episode um okay so we are introduced first to doris um and well doris and alan and they are a married couple who we get this just very um exposition heavy introduction between them uh where he kind of confesses or he confronts her and says hey i found some items in your jewelry case uh so you must have brought home some souvenirs and he says that you know i found a human finger a sacred death stone and a vulture's claw and then i think he says bobbles of a witch doctor which i don't know what bobbles means but i really like the the kind of way that it's phrased that it, that's phrased so it's clear that he's suspicious of them and she kind of argues back to him and says that, you know, I'm like basically communicating that she's very superstitious and everything. So then he throws them in the fire. She freaks out and uh, he says like they have nothing to fear and they're not in Africa anymore. They're in New York. And 
she explains that the shaman said that they were wounding the land and that they were hurting it and making it bleed and that it would come for them. And what I really like about this opening scene is this, the, the way that it unveils the exposition to us. Like we are, we are in this, in this couple's kind of, uh, conflict as they're talking to one another and we are we're being caught up through the dialogue in a very natural way it's not it's not like he um he confronts her and then is saying like oh i can't believe you did this i can't believe you've done this um <laughs> you uh you took these because you're afraid of the curse and because of this and because of that and everything instead he is explaining that, like, okay, we you shouldn't have brought these back. I'm gonna throw them away, and then she freaks out and explains to him as much to us, and like he knows this information, but he she explains it in a very natural way that yeah, you know, we're cursed, and this these were kind of safeguards for it. So anyway, um, I just really liked the dichotomy that's presented there as Alan Richards is Richard being kind of a man of science and uh, Doris Richards being superstitious, even though it's it, it is unfortunate that Doris does not have anything else to do in this episode. She's she's gone for the rest of the episode, um, which I, I kind of really would have liked it to be or I would have been interested, uh, probably more interested in a kind of conflict between them between their their different kind of ideals and everything but then that would also be kind of treading on season two's nick of time that kind of has a similar thing but that's more um that's for lack of a better word really that's that's more um upbeat <laughs> and this is very this is a this is a charles beaumont episode so it's very it's very bleak but um but yeah but then um uh, Alan, uh, leaves. And as he opens the door, she says not to open the door. And when he does, there's like a, uh, the, a goat carcass just right in front of the doorway. Um, and that brings us into the opening narration from Serling, which I'm going to play right now. The carcass of a goat, a dead finger, a few bits of broken glass and stone and Mr. Alan Richards, a modern man of a modern age, hating with all his heart something in which he cannot believe, and preparing, although he doesn't know it, to take the longest walk of his life, right down to the center of the Twilight Zone. So again, I'm really interested in this episode from the jump. Um, it kind of has this man of science, man of faith di dichotomy to it um, that is reminiscent of the man of science, man of faith dichotomy in Lost, one of my favorite shows of all time. Um, uh, uh, oh God, Jack Shepard and John Locke have this clashing throughout the series of, of uh, Jack being a man of science and, and Locke being a man of faith. The season two premiere of Lost is literally titled Man of Science, Man of Faith. Um, and that's why I think it's a little bit of a bummer that... Uh, Doris is cast aside right after the opening narration because I think that that would have been a little bit better but he does Alan does have this uh, conflict throughout him he has or throughout the episode he has this conflict of science versus faith and science versus superstition um, throughout the episode so it is it is pretty good um, then we get kind of a confirmation scene or, or an, a further, um, a further clarification scene 
where he is talking to people in a boardroom and they're considering how the indigenous people of Africa feel about them building the dam. And it's this boardroom and they, they kind of, it kind of doubles down on the exposition of the witch doctors cursing all who work on the project to die. And of course the businessmen are all skeptical and they think it's silly, but Alan calls out their own superstitions. He says that like the Sinclair guy carries a rabbit's foot for good luck as, uh, but as, still skeptical and everything. Um, Mr. Hardy is into astrology and Templeton knocks on wood. Um, and that I feel like is a little bit weird because he's, it's like he is, we have this, we have this introductory scene before where it's like, Oh, I'm not superstitious. I don't care. Um, well, I guess it's not that weird then, but then he is, I mean, I guess he is trying to um, kind of quell their fears about the project because he's saying like, well, you know, you guys think that that's silly, but you know, you guys have your own little things and quirks and everything. So it kind of seems like he's not really like he's, he's trying to explain to them that, um, he's trying to explain to them that maybe it's real, but then it doesn't make sense because the whole episode is about him wanting to, or discovering that it's real and everything. So I don't know. I felt a little bit, um, a little bit confused by that, I guess. I probably missed something and I apologize, but, uh, but yeah, I just, I kind of felt like that was a little, a little off. So then he and Chad are having a drink and I really like this scene because Alan is trying to logic out the dead goat. Um, he's asking like how you can do, um, how, like, do you know how you can get like a dead goat in an hour? <laughs> like, I kind of like that because he's still not accepting of like the superstitious nature of it. And so he's trying to like work out how exactly the logistics of that prank or, or situation presented itself. So I, I really appreciate that. And I like that. Um, and then he spills a drink and he finds this protected amulet in his pocket that was left by Doris to protect him. And, I, I really like that. Um, I really like how Alan kind of sees superstition as a mental illness of sorts. And it's kind of, it kind of has this like, oh, I'm better than you because I like kind of the smugness to him that it's like, I don't believe in this nonsense. So I am inherently better than you. So it kind of has like that undercurrent to it, which makes his downfall a little bit better to swallow and less cruel in, to an extent. It's still a very dark and ominous and, and bleak ending as is, you know, kind of customary with a lot of Charles Beaumont scripts. Um, but this does have like, a little bit of a, of a through line to it that, that makes it a little bit easier to swallow, I guess. And so they leave the bar and he leaves the amulet on the, on the bar. And that's when his night from hell begins because first his car won't start. And then he goes back to the bar and it's closed and everyone's gone. And he just sees the amulet through the window. And then that's when we get our act break. And that's when we know, okay, he is, he's in for a rough night. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's really great. So the first thing is like this first, like kind of low grade run of bad luck for Alan Richards is that the payphone is closed for repairs and it's just another obstacle in his way. But then the phone rings and so he answers it. And this is where we get, this is where the episode kind of 
switches or maybe not switches but this is where the episode really really comes more into focus because this episode the biggest selling point the strongest aspect of the jungle is the sound design this episode is a great exercise in in really really compelling tense uh sound design to to build the tension and and you know build us through the story so the sound design is fantastic and it starts with the phone ringing he answers it he hears this growling and snarling noise through it which is very very unsettling like this is the middle of the night he's in like a big city that is desolate there's weirdly no one around and he answers a ringing phone from an out of order phone booth and it is this animal sound of growling and snarling and I just love that as the introduction to the weirdness of it the Twilight Zone element of this episode has been introduced and it is frightening it is creepy and unsettling and then uh the the show does a really like a really cool camera technique that there's this really cool shot of the phone receiver that's dangling as Alan walks away staring at it and the camera is positioned behind the phone booth and or on the opposite side of the phone booth and we are seeing through the glass of the phone booth to Alan through the uh, through the other side of the glass uh, on the other side of the phone booth as the receiver is dangling and swaying um, in front of us and we hear the snarling and growling so all of that kind of just kind of just creates this very unease this this feeling of unease in the viewer and we see in Alan's uh, walk back like he is perturbed by it. He's very frightened. And this is going to be such a vague and a vague connection to make. But this that sequence was just very just slightly vaguely reminiscent to me of Earl Holloman's phone booth scene in uh, Where Is Everybody, the first ever episode of The Twilight Zone. So I don't know if that's intentional. I don't think it's an intentional homage to the first episode, but I do like the way that, you know, it they kind of echo each other in a certain way. And so as he's walking, we get this other very cool um, overhead shot through a tree with some ominous wind blowing and some jungle animal noises that are slowly being introduced into the soundtrack. And it's again, it's just very atmospheric. It's very immersive and very creepy and unsettling because you know that these sounds do not belong in this setting. And that that weirdness is just so unnerving. And then from there, like this, this episode has some really good escalating tension throughout it because then uh, he hails a cab, he gets a taxi, he gets in. And then they stop at a red light and the light turns green, but the driver doesn't go. <laughs> and again, I've got to say, Charles Beaumont, very bleak. Um, the driver is presumably dead, like he just dies, I think. Um, and then he kind of slumps over to the side, to the passenger side. And I just really like that. And there's this really cool POV shot from inside the car from... Alan's perspective in the back seat and I don't think we've really seen that that I can remember in the Twilight Zone maybe in the Hitchhiker but even in those like those POV shots I think were from Nan Adams perspective in the front seat but here we get shots from the back seat watching the driver slump over at Alan's touch and it just feels far more creepy because we are in we are in 
um, Alan's uh, Alan's perspective. And the difference between him and Nan Adams in the Hitchhiker is Nan Adams is behind the wheel. She is she is in control of the vehicle. Alan is a passenger in the back seat and they in the very vulnerable back seat. And this sense of isolation and an out of control, like this this lack of control for his character really kind of accentuates and adds to the tension of the episode in a really big way. And I just, I really, really like that. And then as he gets out, he hears more sounds of the jungle around him. And there's, again, this complete isolation of the city streets and sidewalks that makes things even more eerie and weird. And I find that to be Again, such a such an interesting, interesting juxtaposition. The jungle noises amidst a desolate New York City set. The city that never sleeps. I like ninety nine percent sure it's supposed to be. Yeah, because they talk about Central Park, I think. Um, but it's there's no one on the streets. There's no one there, and it's just really evocative. And I have in my notes, so I have it's really evocative and with the absence of music haunting. And then as soon as I typed that, as soon as I typed absence of music, a drum was added to the sound of the jungle um, in the, in the soundtrack. And I thought that was just really fun timing. And again, like the timing of this episode is really good because like that is just such a, such a great way to, I mean, like, that was the moment that I realized, oh, yeah, there's no music. This is this is very, very unnerving. And then as soon as I think that, they introduce music to the soundtrack in a way that is part of the creepiness. And I, I don't know, that just really made a more immersive experience for me. And then the next scene, he stumbles upon her and startled by these party costumes in the store window. And there's a man holding a spear in this tribal attire. And uh, the the camera kind of sticks to him for a second. And I kind of feel like there's just a very, very slight hint of the actor um, in the window moving his eye just slightly, moving both of his eyes, like a little bit to the right or left. I'm not sure. And I don't, I'm curious if, I don't know if they really thought, thought this way through or th- thought this through that much, but I kind of feel like maybe there, maybe there was an editing choice there where my uh, this is based on nothing i've read nothing about this i i don't know anything if this this is purely conjecture on my part but that feels like if that is cuz it's very it's like a nanosecond um if that is the case i feel like i feel like there is maybe a scenario where they're editing the episode and then they intentionally left like a few frames of the of the of the man kind of moving his eye slightly just to give us that effect that kind of almost subliminal like oh yeah this is a real person and he's creeping he's creeping out alan and everything um because i i could i could see that being the case again don't know pure conjecture but i just really thought that that was a really cool um moment there and then it's followed up by one of uh, a very cool uh a very cool, com- very well composed shot of Alan standing in front of the window right before he's about to light a cigarette. And uh, the spear in the window, in the display, is pointed directly at Alan's head at an angle. And that's obviously like a very, very obvious foreshadowing. But just the way it's composed, the way it it is so uh, clear to us is just very, very satisfying to me. Um, so I really, uh, liked that. And then 
from there we get this uh beggar on the street come up to alan and say hey i haven't eaten in two days and so alan gives him money um but stops and says and asks where the sound is coming from and obviously the homeless man can't hear him can't hear the sound and it's setting up this ambiguity question um, for at least the rest of the episode for, because we get our answer at the end. Um, well, or do we? I don't know. We'll talk about that. But anyway, it's setting up this ambiguity question. Is this in Alan's head or is it real? Is he just being tormented by his mind or is the jungle coming to attack him and kill him? So at this point, Alan has become more... Uh, accepting of it um or accept or he's he is no longer he's slowly 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 becoming less and less skeptical of it um and he offers ten dollars to the man for him to walk home with him and alan mentions that he has to walk past the park and um that like as soon as he says that and now that you think about it, i don't know is it central is it central i don't know i'm i'm in my head about that but anyway he uh he mentions he has to walk past the park and just like the thought of that like that breadcrumb for us where it's like oh he's going to have to walk through nature on a small scale he's not going to be protected by the city and so that implants in our brain like oh oh the wildlife the like the jungle is going to kind of have be uh is going to um uh habitate no that's not the word inhabit i guess the park and everything and that's where they're going going to get him and i just love that kind of breadcrumb of suspense for us and uh then the homeless man kind of disappears and alan is all alone again and here's here's a really interesting moment for me alan runs uh through like an alleyway i think into this open area and it is a pretty conventional shot. It's a pretty conventionally created shot. It's it's kind of an overhead, maybe crane shot, I don't know, where he is running through. And the sound design of him running through the street is a conventional, like, foot feet hitting the pavement uh, sound effect. And in any other episode, in any other show, any other movie, it would just be maybe fully work it would be just normal it would come across as a normal sound effect to make an immersive uh, uh episode of television but here in this episode in particular this episode is so reliant on sound design that the sound of alan's feet as he runs through the street somehow makes it even more unnerving because on the surface like it is, it is a, like, there's nothing special about him running through the street, and there's nothing special about the sound of his feet hitting the pavement as he's running through the street, but because our ears have been so attuned to this, this crazy, um, um, unexplainable sound that has been permeating through Alan's night, when his, when his, um, adrenaline and fear gets, reach reaches a certain height and he's running through the street us hearing that because we've been so attuned to the sound it will hopefully to the to hopefully to the viewer and it did for me made it even more unnerving especially because that's the only sound in that sequence i don't i i'm 99 sure there's no music or anything it's just him running the footfalls of him running through uh the street and again it is completely normal completely normal completely natural it is completely ordinary but in this episode in the context of this story that's being told it is 
very like weirdly thrilling and i think that that's such an interesting interesting way to uh i don't know engage with the art because i don't know how intentional it was or i don't i feel like that's a byproduct of the uniqueness of this episode um so yeah so then uh so then a lion statue stops alan with the sound of a lion growling and he approaches the statue statue with cautions with caution and he sees he sees two statues and he holds two ten dollar bills and i don't know this is I don't know. I, I, this is, I, I didn't really fully, um, fully, um, go through this thought process, but I kind of felt like maybe that's symbolizing the dam construction in some way. Like, I don't know. It's kind of just showing us like he's a greedy businessman willing to desecrate nature for his own means. But I don't know. That's kind of a loose thing. It doesn't really make sense to me, but, um, but yeah, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. And it was, you know, creepy. And it's good foreshadowing for the end scene, which is bonkers insane. <laughs> and so I don't know where it was filmed or anything, but it feel, and I'm sure it was filmed like in a back lot or what have you. But um, the further that Alan makes it through his walk makes me think some of it may may have been like on location stuff. But in any case, it looks really spectacular. It looks very good. I love uh, the outdoorness of it, if that makes sense. Um, and then we get Alan walking into the park. And again, the sound design is fantastic because all we hear are the faint sound of crickets. Um, and then like the camera is kind of up in, in showing Alan through the trees. And we kind of, we hear, um, I don't know. It just, it just feels so unsettling because this feels, this moment feels like the climax of the story. Like he's been hearing nature among the city, but now he's in nature. And it's such a good way to utilize the building tension throughout the episode to kind of bring us into, uh, what is, you know, the, the climax of the story before the big surprise at the end. And, I don't know. And, and it's just really unsettling. Like there's a shot of uh, shadow gliding across the bushes as the wind blows. It's just, it's fantastic. It's, it's great. Um, so the jungle noises swell and Alan runs through the park and he reaches a fence, gets out. Um, he gets out of the park and stumbles by a trash can sound getting louder. This is classic twilight zone, just bombastic. Like everything is kind of coming to a head. And then he finally reaches his building as the noises and the music reaches its crescendo and Alan covers his ears and then everything returns to normal instantly <laughs> and everything's fine. He stands up and enters the building. And I love that as, as this kind of idea that like the quote unquote jungle, the, the curse is driving him home. Like it's not like he was going home anyway. Like he was, that's where he was going but it's like the it's like the curse or whatever entity is involved here is toying with him and is leading him to to his doom which is a destination he was already going to go to um but it is toying with him to make it be the most tense experience ever um and i just i really like that uh, so yeah, so then we kind of start wrapping up when he gets back home, his hands are shaking, he pours himself a drink and then he hears the lion in the next room. And like I have in my notes, I love this. <laughs> it's so great. Um, in the tension again, he turns around and slowly walks toward the room. He hears this faint lion noises 
And then he opens the door and there's a lion just sitting on the bed waiting for him. And here's where I am a little bit confused. Um, a little bit confused because I couldn't tell all the times I've seen this episode. I couldn't tell if we are supposed to, I don't, I can't tell if Doris is dead in the bed next to the lion. I, I can't tell if, because like there's a, there's kind of an obscured shot of what looks like her head or looks like hair just in a ball next to the lion and I can't tell if that's supposed to tell us that she was killed by the lion. And I think the vagueness of that is maybe probably, you know, a, uh, maybe not censorship issue, but like a, you know, they can't show a mauled body and everything. Um, or maybe it's just me wanting to see a very violent thing in the episode. Um, I'm not sure if you have any information or any, any way to clar clarify that for me, please let me know. Cause, um, cause yeah, I'm very curious about that, but it looks like, it looks like she's dead. It looks like a dead body next to the lion. And then the lion runs to the camera and you hear Alan screaming off camera as the lion destroys him. And I have in my notes, Charles Beaumont. Wow. <laughs> because again, it seems like a very bleak ending. Um, a very just, uh, very bleak ending, really. <laughs> very bleak end for Alan Richards. Uh, yeah. And then we get very brief uh, closing narration from Serling, which I'm going to go ahead and play right now. Some superstitions kept alive by the long night of ignorance have their own special power. You'll hear of it through a jungle grapevine in a remote corner of the Twilight Zone. So my overall thoughts are this was a very solid episode. And I think going through and talking through it here um, has really has really helped me pinpoint the parts of this of this episode that I really, really liked. Um, this is such a great exercise in tone and tension and atmosphere. And it has this very cool and very cruel and gruesome end at the or surprise at the end. And I just really like that. And I'm, I know that I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here, but I do think it's really interesting that we have this episode being so focused on the sound. And then, uh, the very next episode we have next episode of the twilight zone is once upon a time, which also has a very, very, uh, deep relationship with sound. And, uh, I just find that the, I find the pairing of those two episodes really, really interesting in, in where they are, um, in the chronological order of the twilight zone. Um, so to get back to the end of this episode, um, I really admire that gruesomeness of it and how just unforgiving it is. Like, again, I keep saying it feels like a Charles Beaumont episode because he had these kind of cruel twists of fate in, in his episodes. And it's interesting because in this episode, this particular story doesn't doesn't really play out the same way that other like cautionary tales in the Twilight Zone uh, play out. Um despite the cautionary tale being so baked into the plot, like this episode is about a man who has been uh, threatened by a witch doctor um, that, you know, death and pain and everything will come after the people that are desecrating the land. He doesn't believe it. 
then he is dealt a very, very cruel death because he doesn't believe it, because he doesn't respect the land, because he is going over there and desecrating the land for his own profit and everything. But even though that is so baked into the plot, it feels like he doesn't really have an emotional journey or he doesn't have like this realization. He has a little bit of that. As I said in the review, he has a little bit of, he has a little bit of this, um, kind of not rationalization, but he, he becomes, he becomes a little bit aware that something is amiss. And that's when he asks the, the man to walk home with him and everything. But even that, like that is just a very, very small, small, um, move into the direction of kind of realizing that, you know, he messed up and it it just seems really cruel and even angry that he isn't necessarily given an opportunity to rectify his, his transgressions and he isn't really given this opportunity. This is just a, this is a character who is being dealt a punishment um, without any, any hope of reprieval or coming out the other side alive or changed or even alive. So I don't know. I feel like that may bother some people and I'm curious to hear what people's reactions to this episode were and are today for that reason, because that kind of does seem like a, it just seems like a very gruesome way to just toy with a character and and kill him so viciously (laughs) uh, without, without that hope for redemption. But again, that darkness is kind of it is kind of a signature for Charles Beaumont. Um, and it's, it's a little bit, it's, it's in keeping with, with his writing. So I can't fault the episode for that, but overall, I think that this was a solid episode, very solid, very enjoyable. The, the, it's not a top tier twilight zone episode for me by any stretch, but the things that do work and the things that I was impressed by are very impressive. (laughs) Like the atmosphere, the tone, and the sound design. I cannot sing the praises of that enough. I think that that's a really cool, immersive, um, immersive and scary kind of, uh, uh, story and in way to, way to communicate the story to us. So I don't have much else in the way of notes or trivia, except that the stairs in the city street, I read this on IMDb, where Alan runs up a set of stairs and looks into the bar's glass door is the same set from the Twilight Zone episode, One for the Angels, uh, where Lou Bil- Lou Bookman made his sales pitch to Mr. Death. Uh, so that's the only piece of trivia I really have for this episode. Um, but yeah, overall thoughts again, I enjoyed it. I think it's a very solid episode and uh, I'm eager to see what you guys think of it and what you guys think of me coming back to anthology after almost a year. Sorry again, <laughs> uh, but I'm back and I'm like, even in this moment, like recording this episode has been a blast so far. Like every time I come back to anthology, I just remember how much I love anthology and how much I love this side project podcast that I've been doing for years at this point. So, um, thank you guys for holding out for holding out for me and and coming back and listening. But anyway, as is customary, that is my, that is my review of the jungle from uh, season three of the twilight zone. And now I'm going to wind down the episode with a bonus review of an episode of science fiction theater. 
This episode is called Negative Man, and I'm going to go ahead and play my uh, science fiction theater stinger that I just remembered I had in this moment, <laughs> and uh, then I'll get into my thoughts on Negative Man. And Negative Man is episode 20 from Science Fiction Theater's first season, and it originally aired on September 10th, 1955. And uh, and yeah, so for those who don't know, well, I will say this. <sighs> Almost every episode of Science Fiction Theater was available on YouTube at one point, but I could not, I think that they got flagged or they got pulled down and everything. Um, the entire series was available on DVD, and thankfully I was able to buy a copy of the DVD set some time ago, years ago, but in the interim, that that DVD set is now out of print, and you can buy a new copy on Amazon for $100, um, which is nuts. I... I'm so sorry, everyone, but uh, I did see that Science Fiction Theater did have some uh, episodes available online on YouTube, but it, it, they're basically gone now. Um, this one is Negative Man, so I'm going to kind of see if I can find um, a de- uh, an episode of it. Okay, so it does look like it. there is, there is an episode, there is a, uh, it does look like it is available online. Yes. Okay. On Daily Motion, I'll put a link in the show notes of this episode so you guys can watch it. I know that one of the one of my listeners had uh, had contacted me and asked if I was able to find any of them. So if you're listening, it's on Daily Motion. I put a link in the show notes. So hopefully you guys can check it out. But anyway, um, yes. So I'm so glad that that's available. But I will put a link in the show notes of this episode. And of course, I'm not going to be spoiling this episode of Science Fiction Theater. I'm going to kind of just have this, you know, free form kind of. Um, uh, self-discussion about the episode that I watched. So, okay. So, as is usually the case with science fiction theater, Truman Bradley introduces us to the episode by having this, um, kind of a demonstration, a kind of scientific demonstration or kind of thought, uh, that is brought in, um, kind of the scientific like thought experiment. And this one's pretty fun because it's him. He sits down and he talks about how like, oh, you know, people say that chess is, you know, a thinking man's game or something, or, or it's, it's a very intelligent game or whatever. And he starts playing chess. And then the, the, um, the pieces on the other side of the board move by themselves. And he's like, oh no, I'm not playing a ghost or whatever. Um, I'm playing a computer and he doesn't say computer. It's like, it's like he says a machine brain or something like that. And then the camera pans over to this massive structure that's in the room. And, uh, it's just this massive computer that takes up an entire wall. And he says that I, I really, really like that. I really like it because first of all, it's a cool effect to just show them moving on their own. And then I, I just really like it because he says like the way the introduction of the episode is that he's just like, yeah, um, 
you know, someday science will create machines that can think like humans. Or uh, he says that he has played this machine twice and it's beaten him once. So that, so by kind of, you know, by extension, that means that mankind has created a machine that is smarter than humans in some respects. And what will, what will science do next? And, uh, and it's just, it's really cool. I really like that, that aspect of this episode as this, not prescient thing, but this sort of, um, this sort of speculative thing. Like it's very speculative and knowing like how technology has evolved since then is a real treat to see this from 1955. So, okay. Negative man. Uh, the plot synopsis is after an accident in a laboratory, an electrician develops superior intelligence and superhuman sensory powers. This episode was directed by Henry Kessler and written by Thelma Schnee from a short story by Ivan Tors. And it stars Dane Clark, Beverly Garland, and Carl Switzer. And this is very cool because, again, this episode aired in 1955 and Dane Clark was also in an episode of the of the Twilight Zone from season two. And what's awesome is that the episode that he was in was called The Prime Mover. And that episode is about a a man that runs a diner who finds out that his that his friend is uh imbued with the super superhuman knowledge and um uh he has this these superhuman abilities. And here in this episode, which aired like a full decade and some before uh, or, uh, not full decade, but, um, I don't know, several years before, uh, this, that episode of the Twilight Zone, Dane Clark, who played the, played the diner owner, um, is now playing an electrician who gets shocked and has all of these superpowers that, uh, that are kind of the same. Like he knows things that he shouldn't know. He hears things that he shouldn't hear. He's able to, uh, get information that no one else can. And I just found that to be a really interesting a really interesting thing. Not to say that Dane Clark's casting in the Prime Mover was stunt casting by any stretch, but it's just really interesting to see how those how those two episodes kind of match up. And another thing that I really liked is that, um, or something I found interesting, I should say, is that this episode, the story, does feel like it, it immediately reminded me of the story Flowers for Algernon. And um, that story, I read it in school. I really liked it. Um, but what was interesting is that that was first published like four years after this episode aired. So I don't think that there's any case of like plagiarism or anything, or there's no case of, you know, there being, um, I don't, I, I think that that's an interesting coincidence really. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that, but, um, uh, the opening scene of this episode though does have like this, another kind of massive machine, like, uh, this is, this is so much bigger than the one in the pre-show with, uh, with Truman Bradley, but it's like, it's full walls. It covers full walls and everything. And like they refer to it, <laughs> they refer to it as a series of tubes, uh, which is great because that's what, uh, some, someone, I can't remember who, uh, some old ass politician years ago, uh, referred to, was it Al Gore? I don't know, but, uh, they talked about how the internet was a series of tubes. <laughs> oh, that's dumb. But anyway, um, so, uh, yeah, so I just, I really like this episode, uh, because of me being a modern 
like a modern audience member watching this episode from 1955 and kind of i'm not laughing at the science or laughing at the speculation or anything i'm just i and part of me is kind of in awe of how they depict this you know uh the future from a 1955 perspective i don't know i just i really i really like that so um so anyway, so so uh, oh, I can't remember the character's name, but Dane Clark gets shocked, and he quickly realizes that he can hear things, and and he starts kind of intervening on things, and I I like that because he like he overhears a woman arguing on the phone, and uh, he's very upset because she is being yelled at by a man who is threatening her and everything which I, I really like because we don't hear that. He only hears it. And, uh, and so he kind of, um, I think at that point he, um, confronts her and says like, Hey, I, I would be so upset if someone talked to me like that. And she's like, what the hell are you talking about? Like quit, um, <laughs> uh, quit, like leave me alone. Like, how would you know that? Um, and then it goes further when, you know, he, overhears something in her apartment because he's at the apartment below her and uh and then he kind of does this like white knight thing where he goes in and tries to save her and naturally which i, I thought this was a nice touch naturally she is you know appalled by it like why are you eavesdropping on me Stop, like leave me alone you're like crazy so i really like that and then that that kind of leads to another part that i won't spoil this is where i'm going to kind of not you know um spoil things but um but before it gets to that point, there is like he he seeks out scientists and he he goes through all these scientific testings. They they do these hypotheses and everything. And like this show, I like it's been a while since I've watched it, obviously, but it's just so nice. It's so refreshing to see a story play out that is science fiction that has such a clear a clear juggle of science and fiction. Um, and what I mean by that is that we see these characters go through the scientific method, go through scientific processes to figure out and, and rule out certain things. And they get the scientific explanation for the science fiction, or I'm mean, sorry, they get the scientific answer or scientific hypothesis for the science fiction storyline. And Again, I've said this in several episodes over the years at this point that this is so cool as a as a as a as a as a vessel for showing like kids that, you know, science is cool and kind of showing the process of it and everything. And I just wish that there was an anthology show like that today, but I won't get into that whole um, <laughs> that whole uh, pipe dream of mine, but um, but suffice it to say, this episode is a very good mix of scientific method and research and everything, alongside fun dramatic beats with uh the with the Sally character being kind of eavesdropped on by the by the main character, um, and then him like there's this there's this level of like oh I need to save this I need to do this I need to help help this woman and everything uh, with no, um, no real thought as to how it would be perceived by someone without this gift that he has been given. So I just, I really like that as a, as a dramatic thing. It's still pretty, 
pretty light and everything all told, but it's it's a pretty good um the the biggest strength of the episode is that it does have that level of um it does have that level of um oh god <laughs> that level of suspense and uh that uh, it it levels out the two things the science and the fiction so i really like that um the okay so so and then the end of the episode is kind of abrupt i won't give anything away or anything but um it kind of ends and it's kind of fine it's okay um but then in the post uh the kind of post thing um <laughs> with Truman Bradley. I thought this was funny because this has been discredited and everything and it's been misinterpreted and everything um over the years, but he says like he says like yeah, this was a this is was a work of fiction, but it is he says like the words it is scientific fact that we only use a fraction of our brain's full potential. So maybe someday we'll have these superpowers and everything. And I think the actual phrasing is that Maybe someday today's normal will be uh, tomorrow's or maybe today's maybe today's extraordinary would be will be tomorrow's normal. Um, so I don't know. I just thought that, that was kind of uh, if I can be super reductive and um, <laughs> kind of condescending. I thought it was cute. <laughs> but yeah, so I don't know. I just I thought that was kind of funny. Um, but yeah, so that's, those are my thoughts on Negative Man. Um, there was a little bit of a discrepancy with the title. Um, I think the DVD refers to it as The Negative Man, but in the actual episode, the title card says just Negative Man, so I'm calling it Negative Man. So, uh, so yeah, so if I am wrong in that, please do not, um, please do not, you know, uh, murder me, I guess. I don't know. Anyway. Um, so yeah, so that'll do it for this episode of Anthology. I'm really glad to be back. Um, next time on the podcast, I'm going to be talking about episode 13 from Twilight Zone's third season titled Once Upon a Time. Very excited about that because it's, it's a very interesting episode. It's a very unique episode with a very cool, uh, lead, you know, actor. <laughs> it's, it's very cool. And then the, uh, science fiction theater episode that I'm going to pair that with is, uh, Dead Reckoning, which let me check and see if that's available as well, because, uh, that would be really cool if it is science fiction theater. Um, also, yeah, the, um, uh, the website that I'm going to link to that has uh, this episode, the Negative Man episode, refers to it as uh, the the Negative Man. Um, so yeah, so I don't know. Um, okay, it looks like there is, it looks like there may be a copy of Dead Reckoning on um, the internet. Maybe, maybe. So uh, hopefully it is. Uh, let me just double check and make sure. Uh, but yeah, so it should be, if it, if it is, I will put a link in the show notes and everything, um, for that. And I'm hoping that I can get the next episode posted soon. Once again, before I go, I just want to mention and, and promote, uh, our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. I realized that having about a year of dead silence on <laughs> the anthology feed maybe doesn't give me the right to, to shill for money or to, to, uh, pitch my Patreon, uh, feed to you guys. But I will say that, uh, patrons, since it has been such a long time, I'm posting this episode on Wednesday, but patrons had access to it 
I mean, honestly, probably I'm recording this Saturday night at 1130 p.m. They will probably have access to it at midnight. <laughs> um, so so just keep that in mind. Patreon.com slash obsessive viewer there. The the content that I have on Patreon goes across all of my podcasts. So obsessive viewer anthology tower junkies. So there's a lot of stuff there. You, I have a lot of the posts. I have every post tagged with different things. So you'll be able to see like, you know, if you want just Stephen King content, you can go to Stephen King stuff. If you want just B roll content, which is just us kind of farting around and, uh, and kind of talking more casually that's, that's listed in the tags and everything. Um, I also have commentary tracks. Of course I have, uh, listeners to this show will be interested in knowing that I have commentary tracks for like Ex Machina and some other science fiction stuff, Sunshine. Um, and do I have a, co- a commentary for Sunshine? Yeah, I have to. It's up there. Yeah. So anyway, um, I have a bunch of stuff there. I'm also doing a big review series project for Stephen King's short fiction. So I did all of his 1975, uh, 77, I don't know, uh, his 1970s short fiction collection, Night Shift. That's six hours of audio on Night Shift. Then I just did another six hours or so of audio on Skeleton Crew. So there's a ton of stuff there. Please consider checking it out. Patreon.com slash Obsessive Viewer. More information there. I'm going to go ahead and play myself out. Um, I forget how I play myself out or I forget how like the outro stuff is. So I'm just playing the Obsessive Viewer one. So hopefully that's okay. Um, all right. Well, anyway, thank you guys so much for listening and holding out for me to release new content. Very happy to be back in your ears with more anthology content, and I will be back soon with my thoughts on Once Upon a Time and Dead Reckoning. Thank you guys, and I'll see you in the next episode. And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. Scene like that is such a huge moment. That is that is such a shocking, shocking moment. And now, just with a wave of Paul Reiser, it's just it's none of that matters. Like we will not see. I do not believe we will see anything more with that plot line ever again in in the history of Netflix original series. Um, and I don't, I don't, I think that that's, I think that there's a an element of maybe clunky storytelling there because I get that the intention of that is to show that, you know, Eleven is still dangerous or she is. This podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find links to all of our shows at ObsessiveViewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.